I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. We begin with stocks in a holding pattern as investors wait for a second look at U.S. inflation after yesterday's better-than-expected CPI. New this morning, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen sounding the alarm again over the debt limit deadlock, calling the notion of a default unthinkable. We are live from the G7 in Japan coming up. And speaking of default, what former President Trump told attendees at a town hall last night that is starting to worry some on Wall Street. Plus, shares of Disney under pressure, despite an impressive second quarter beat. What's dragging on that stock in just a moment? And then later, making waves in the EV freight space. We speak with number 13 on the CNBC Disruptor 50 list. The CEO of Einride is here. It is Thursday, May the 11th, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Good morning and welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I am Frank Holland. I hope your morning is getting off to a great start. Let's kick off this hour with a check on U.S. stock futures after a bit of a mixed session for stocks yesterday. Following that better than expected CPI read right now, looking at the futures, we're seeing green across the board. All three of these indices up fractionally right now at this point. Again, we always say it's super early, but the Dow would open up about 50 points higher. We're also checking the bond market. That's where we're really seeing some movement, especially this morning. Looking at the benchmark 10-year at 3.44. That's down about 10 basis points from where it closed on Tuesday before we got that CPI report. The big mover, though, the two-year. This is down the yield, down about 1% from where we were before that CPI print. So some big movement on the short end of the bond uh, uh, picture right there, something that we continue to watch. We're also looking at energy. Now, energy is interesting. We're seeing WTI, the U.S. benchmark, it's back above 70 bucks a barrel. We're seeing it popping up this morning on reports of stronger fuel demand, especially in the U.S. when it comes to jet fuel. We're seeing WTI crude up 1%, Brent crude up 1%, natural gas down fractionally. Not a lot of news there, but you got to see it's also above 2 bucks, a stronger side sign for natural gas after kind of a down year. We're also looking at crypto. We're also always watching crypto. And guess what? We're not seeing any positive signs there. A lot of people thought crypto would get a bump from the banking crisis, inflation, other macro factors. However, Bitcoin still below 30,000, down 1% this morning. Ether still below 2,000. That's been a key um, uh, price level for when it comes to Ether, down 1.5% this morning. All right. Speaking of rising rates and a lot of other things around the world, we're looking at the U.K. this morning. And just one week after the Federal Reserve's 10th straight rate hike in just over a year, the Bank of England is set to follow suit with a rate decision due out in just about two hours from now. We have wall-to-wall coverage ahead of that release. Our Jemana Bersetti, she's outside the Bank of England. And our Juliana Tattlebaum is standing by in our London newsroom with much more on the market reaction. First, we're going to start off with Jemana. Jemana, over to you. The Bank of England is expected to hike interest rates by 25 basis points, taking that base rate to 4.5 percentage point, the highest level seen since 2008. Now, as ever, the vote split is going to be watched very closely. Seven members of the committee are expected to vote for that rate hike. Zero, uh, are, two of them are expected to vote for no hike at all, possibly even a rate cut. But the backdrop here is very important. Inflation in the UK is still running very, very hot. The March headline inflation print came at 10.1 percentage points. Core inflation still sitting at 6.2 percentage points. That is higher than where Eurozone and US core inflation prints are sitting. 
And in addition to that, private sector wage growth is still running very hot at 7.3 percentage points. So the justification for an interest rate hike is certainly there. One other thing that market participants are going to be watching out for is their updated growth forecast. Now remember, back in February, the Bank of England released their economic projections for this year, showing the economy contracting by 0.5 percentage points. They are expected to upgrade those growth forecasts to around zero, and the headline, of course, being that they no longer see the UK entering into recession over the full calendar year. So the economic prospects looking slightly better. However, with inflationary pressures so strong, the pressure is still on them to continue hiking. And whether or not they're going to guide towards further interest rate hikes is going to be a question for that press conference. All right. That was our Germana Persecci outside the Bank of England. Let's now check on how the global markets are shaping up ahead of that decision and send it to our Juliana Tattlebaum live in our London newsroom. Juliana. Frank. Frank, good morning. Well, as for European markets, we are headed higher in the lead up to that Bank of England decision. Every major region is trading in the green this morning. FTSE 100 up two tenths of a percent. We are trading off the highs of the day, but still holding on to the gains. The Zetra DAX up about 14 basis points. The CAC 40 over in France is having a bit of a stronger start to trade up six tenths of a percent. One thing that is weighing on trade on the downside is the softer than expected inflation data out of China overnight. So we are seeing underperformance in the basic resources names. That is a heavy weighting within the FTSE 100. So part of the reason that we're seeing a bit of a lag in the FTSE 100 equity market. Turning to Forex, here's a check on the pound this morning. We are trading down versus the dollar by about three tenths of a percent, 125.90. It seems as though it's as much about dollar strength as, as it is about sterling weakness. Here you have the dollar trading very strongly versus the euro. Euro down four tenths of a percent to 109.33. Also seeing dollar strength versus the yen and and the Swiss franc. Finally, turning to bond markets, let's see how gilts are trading. UK bonds in the lead up to the decision. We've got yields moving lower across the front end of the curve. Yields higher toward the long end of the curve. The 30-year UK gilt is trading around 4.2%. Frank, back over to you. Juliana, thank you very much. Our Juliana Tattlebaum live in our London newsroom. All right, time now for a check on this morning's top corporate stories, including Disney getting hit ahead of the open. Our Pippa Stevens is here with that story. Good morning, Pippa. Good morning, Frank. And starting here with Disney because those shares are under pressure despite a stronger-than-expected earnings report that showed a dramatic reduction in streaming losses. Investors, however, are paying closer attention to Disney Plus subscriber losses down 2% or 4 million accounts in the last quarter alone. Speaking this morning ahead of the G7 finance minister's meeting in Japan, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen saying the idea of letting the U.S. default on its debt is, quote, unthinkable, adding it would undermine the U.S. and global economies. This comes after former President Trump last night suggested Republican lawmakers should seriously consider default as a viable option. And China says consumer prices rose at their slowest rate in two years last month as the economy slowly recovers from three years of strict COVID-19 controls. The consumer price index rose 0.1 percent year on year, weaker than the 0.7 percent economists were expecting. Frank? You're going to have much more on that CPI report. Pippa Stevens will have much more of you, too. See you later (laughs) in the show. All right. Now turning our attention to the broader markets, despite signs from the CPI that inflation was easing with headline inflation falling to its lowest annual level in two years. One top Fed official is not fully convinced just yet. Speaking to the Associated Press, Richmond Fed President Tom Barkin says inflation remains stubbornly high and is no longer making much progress towards the Fed's target of two percent. 
Barkin says core CPI has been stuck in a range of about 0.3 to 0.5 percent for months when the Fed would like to see it moving steadily down. While most economists believe the Fed will now pause its rate hikes, Barkin says the Fed's message after last week's meeting was, quote, explicitly not a pause, but an option to wait or do more if that's appropriate. All right, let's bring in Bill Stone, CIO of the Glenwood Trust Company. Bill, great to have you here. Good morning. Morning. All right, so what do you make of those Barkin comments? A lot of people, especially the markets, they seem to be pricing in a pause. A lot of people interpreted what Jay Powell had to say as a pause was coming. Uh, Barkin pushing back pretty hard on that notion. Yeah, so I think you have to look at two things. So one is, yeah, I mean, clearly the market has it priced in as a pause, really doesn't look for any change until maybe September when you start to see cuts. So that's the market side of things. You know, the Fed clearly has to keep talking about the fact that they're going to keep fighting inflation if it sticks in there. There is reasons to be a little worried, as he kind of notes. So I watched the Atlanta Fed sticky inflation it's still up there at 6.5% year over year. It, it has improved, but it's still up there. Um, that's the numbers now. I think when you look through things, there's reasons to believe the market may be right. So you're starting to see some softness creep into the labor market. You know, you, you have to look at the average or the four week average of initial jobs claims. They've moved up off the bottoms. So a lot of this sticky inflation is related to wages and labor. That's why you see so much emphasis on payrolls, et cetera. And again, you can't say it's soft. It's just a little bit softer in that area. Uh, and eventually, at least if the trend continues, right. that will probably end up helping inflation. You know, Bill, this is a great chart. I know you brought this to our attention. When you look at this chart, it's hard to think that there is going to be a pause because the stickiness and the inflation's way up. About a third of the CPI report is shelter, a.k.a. rent. We have a housing shortage here in the United States, so it's hard to imagine that number going back down. Were there other parts of the CPI print that you saw being especially sticky? Well, so rents are one where the government, it's, a, it's kind of a lag number against the real world. So the year-over-year comparisons in rents have, have actually, in the real world, let me put it that way, not in government data, have started to get better. You can watch it from Zillow uh, and some other places. So actually, you could probably have a good bet that that's part of what will start helping. It's really, I'll, I'll, I pin it on the wages because it's the service side of the economy and those things, and those are so tied to the wage side. Okay. Uh, and that's really the place to watch. That's interesting. That's where you think you're going you're gonna to see deflation because a lot of people think that's the stickiest inflation of them all. Um, I do want to switch gears, though. Banking crisis and debt ceiling are two issues that you are watching very closely. With those kind of threats to the markets coming up, how are you advising your clients to protect their portfolios? Are there any just big moves that you're making ahead of, you know, a possible default or a banking crisis taking a turn for the worse? So, you know, I, I kind of try and say the, the, the debt crisis or debt ceiling is really a political issue, and you have to keep that in mind. So both sides have reasons to ramp up, or every side kind of involved in this has reasons to ramp up the rhetoric because you're in a negotiation, right? And you also have a reason to maybe take it to the last minute. You always wonder why does it always happen at the last minute they solve this? Well, because it's a negotiation. Um, so that being said, I just don't expect a default um, because even if – there was technically some sort of uh, an issue. We have the money or you know, could easily have the money to pay. So uh, it's much different than I would say or less worrisome than I think some would paint out to be. Um, not that it couldn't cause market volatility, et cetera. Um, so I think what you look for is to take opportunity in it, which is you know, if you look around the one-month T-bills, which is okay. where the kind of thinking will run out of money, 
Um, those have an, a little bit of an elevated yield. So, hey, why not get paid a little bit more uh, over 5%, 5.3%, depending on when you look at it. Those right. things get, get kind of interesting. Bill, you're, um, you're master an understatement, man. The one month right now, <laughs> we're 57 So more than a little bit elevated. we got to leave the conversation there, Bill. Always okay. great to see you. Thanks for coming Thank on you. this morning. All right, a lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors just have to know today. But first, more of your big money movers and why Sonos shareholders do not like what they're hearing. Plus, where freight meets AI meets all electric. We're talking with the CEO of Einride, live from Sweden, number 13 on this year's CNBC disruptor list. And then later, much more on Disney and why despite the subscriber blip, our next guest is recommending that you stick with the stock. A very busy hour still ahead. Worldwide Exchange returns. All right, welcome back to WEX. Time now for your big money movers. Three stock stories of the morning. We start off with shares of Sonos falling double digits after the audio product maker beat Wall Street expectations for its fiscal Q2, but cut guidance for the year due to softening consumer demand and inventory tightening. The company's CEO telling shareholders that Sonos is taking swift action to reduce expenses and protect its profitability. Shares down almost 26% this morning. Unity Software moving in the opposite direction, rising on an earnings beat and stronger than expected guidance for the current quarter. Unity expects revenue to range between $510 million and $520 million. The video game software developer says it expects to grow faster than its competitors this year and believes it is well positioned to benefit from AI tools. Shares of Unity up 10%. And shares of Robinhood also popping after surpassing Q1 revenue expectations with the company noting the Fed's aggressive monetary tightening helped partially offset a slump in Robinhood's retail trading arm. The online brokerage also announcing it will launch 24-hour trading for five days a week. Monthly active users decreased during the most recent quarter, but that number has stabilized. Shares of Robinhood up over 3.5%. And CEO Vlad Tenev will have more on the results in a first on CNBC interview coming up at 8.45 a.m. Eastern. All right, ahead here on Worldwide Exchange, the CEO of Einride and why a partnership with Pepsi could just be the beginning for this EV freight disruptor. Worldwide Exchange, back in a minute. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange, the 11th annual CNBC Disruptor 50 list. It's out, highlighting private companies chasing some big opportunities. That includes your next guest, making big waves in the EV freight space and already boasting a client portfolio that includes PepsiCo, GE Appliances, and Beyond Meat. Joining me now, live from Sweden, is Robert Falk, founder and CEO of Einride, number 13 on this year's list. Robert, good morning. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. All right, so let's talk a little bit about why you're a disruptor. Um, the the semi-truck space where most of the freight in the world, or how most of the freight in the world is transported, that's generally dominated by diesel-powered trucks. How is Enride disrupting that? <clears throat> what does that mean for the long-term outlook for the freight transportation space? I think that what we are doing at Enride, it's not just about the truck. We look at that as a complete system. So we try to disrupt industry when what we are doing with our clients is give them the opportunity to utilize this new technology in a cost-efficient way. So instead of selling a truck, we're offering a service, and that service can be cost-competitive and sustainable. And with that tool, we can disrupt the between 40 to 50% of the market today driven by the business case. 
All right, so you're talking about transport as a service, very similar to software as a service as we see in other areas. That's absolutely correct. We have two, tie, uh, two offers or two business models. One is software as a service, and another one is capacity as a service. So what we do when we engage with our clients is to see what is their transport needs, how can they digitalize their services to get the real benefits of that, and how can we provide the capacity for transporting the goods that they need in an electric and a sustainable way. Okay. Uh, you're no stranger to the Worldwide Exchange audience. We had you on before just a couple weeks ago when you announced a partnership with PepsiCo. You have a number of high-profile clients. I'm just going to read a few of them. Maersk, a global shipper, GE Appliance, and Beyond Meat. So those companies obviously showing a lot of confidence in your products and your software. Where are we at right now when it comes to the electrification of the global supply chain? Where do you see it going forward? How does Einride play a part in that? I mean, the opportunity we're discussing here is a $4 trillion freight mobility space. If you look at numbers in our software platforms, when we assess the potential, between 40 to 50% of that should be electric, driven by the business case today. That means that's a $2 trillion opportunity already today. And that's what our clients see as well. They want to get the benefits of going sustainable, but they're not willing to do that without being a cost-competitive way. So that's what we go and bring to the offer. So instead of depending on the old legacy system of diesel, we offer them a digital, electric, and eventually autonomous offer that is extremely competitive, as you can see from the number of customers that chosen to work with us at that right. All right. You have some unique insight into this space. You have a lot of competitors. You have big automakers that are jumping into the EV tractor trailer space. You also have a lot of startups similar to yours. When it comes to autonomous freight, give us a, a quick sense of where we're at. When are we going to see that as a reality in the global supply chain? I mean, there are a lot of uh, competitive and being competitive. If you don't have competitive, it's probably not going to be something that actually works. So for us, it's about the focusing on the customers and their needs. And we come to autonomous. We always seen autonomous as a gradual transition. If you look at most goods today, it's all been ready being transported autonomous electric inside warehouses, in dioside logistic centers. And we have taken the same approach when it comes to autonomous. We take care of the freight gets and the capacity needs of our clients. Then we start with manual electric and gradually introduce more and more autonomous because we see that autonomous will take gradual. We're already doing autonomous transport for our clients, but not everywhere. We start with the simple applications, for instance, in fenced-off areas, in fenced-off areas through public road and low speeds. That allows us to start to get the benefits of autonomous here now and then gradually grow into it because this is not just about making a truck autonomous. This is about changing the entire transport system. But the opportunity is there. It's the $4 trillion market and in 25 years. That we're going to be most predominantly electric and autonomous. All right, certainly something to watch. Thank you, Robert Falk, CEO of Einride, number 13 on this year's Disruptor 50 list. All right, Thank time you. now for a check on this morning's other headlines. NBC's Philip Mena, live in New York with the very latest. Good morning, Philip. Hey, Frank, good morning. The cities and towns that line the southern border are bracing for an influx of migrants when Title 42 expires at midnight. Humanitarian aids and shelters are already at capacity. And NBC News has learned that the Biden administration is set to make a major change, releasing some migrants into the U.S. without a court date and with no way to keep tabs on them. 
Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas insists it would only be a minor fraction of vetted migrants. Former President Trump faced voters in a CNN town hall yesterday, and he was asked about the January 6th Capitol attack. Here's what he had to say. The question to you is, will you pardon the January 6th rioters who were convicted of federal offenses? Uh, I am inclined to uh, pardon many of them. I can't say for every single one, because a couple of them, probably they got out of control. What they've done to these people, they've persecuted these people. And yeah, my, my answer is, I am most likely, if I get in, I will most likely, I would say it will be a large portion of them. And the renaissance has begun. Beyonce's world tour kicked off last night in Stockholm, Sweden. It was an hours-long performance of new hits, as well as some classics, and of course, there were outfit changes, a lot of them, from glittery gold suits to a metallic robot number and even a bee-inspired set. So if you want to catch uh, Beyonce, Frank, or anyone else out there when she comes to America, that'll be July 12th in Philadelphia. Oh, that's my hometown. I might have to check it out. So, Philip, are you, are you in the Bayhive or the Beehive? I forget which one it is. But you're both from Texas, so yes or no? You in the Beehive? So I went to a concert of hers. I went for a Jay-Z concert that she was at in Houston, in her hometown, it was not a Jay-Z concert. It turned into a Beyonce love fest, and I could understand the devotion that her fans had. Uh, she stole the show that night, even though it showed up for Jay-Z. All right, we might have to meet up in Philly on July 12th. Let me know if you want to go. Tickets on you, though. It would All be right, cool. Philip Mena, live in New York. Great to see you, man. Still to come here at Worldwide Exchange, your morning call sheet, and some of this morning's biggest upgrades and downgrades, including a very bullish view on Roblox. Worldwide Exchange, right back after this. It is right around 5.30 a.m. here in the New York City area, and we're just getting started here on Worldwide Exchange. Here is what's still on deck. We start with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen once again sounding the alarm on the dire need to get a debt ceiling deal done. This time, as she meets with fellow G7 finance ministers, we're live in Japan with her latest comments. Shares of Disney losing some of their magic ahead of the open as its number of streaming subscribers slips. We're digging into those numbers with a top analyst in just a moment. And new data out this morning, shedding some fresh light on the consumer and their willingness to spend on travel. You'll get that data first here on CNBC on this Thursday, May 11th, right here on Worldwide Exchange. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Collin. Hope your morning's getting off to a great start. Let's pick up the half an hour with the check on U.S. stock futures. As we mentioned earlier, green across the board, um, fractionally higher. The Dow would open up about 40 points higher uh, right now, again, very early. So slipping just a bit from where it was about a half an hour ago. We now want to turn our, our attention to that developing story in Japan. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen offering a fresh warning over the need for the White House and Congress to reach a deal to raise the debt ceiling. Yellen making her remarks while gathering with fellow G7 finance ministers in Japan. And that is where we find our Martin Soong, who joins us live from that meeting. Martin, good morning. What's the latest? Good morning, uh, Frank. You know, when this whole G7 process started under Japan's presidency uh, this year, it was supposed to lead to a conclusion at the summit, which is coming up next Friday in Hiroshima, of more action uh, towards de-risking China and also de-risking uh, uh, Russia, of course. But ironically, the conversation has changed. Now people are talking about how to de-risk the U.S. We're talking about, of course, the debt ceiling crisis. You're right. Secretary Yellen uh, is here, and she spoke uh, earlier today. Here's what she had to say on that front. The notion of defaulting on our debt 
is something that would so badly undermine um, the U.S. and global economy that I think it should be regarded by everyone as unthinkable. So Secretary Yellen there speaking earlier today here in Niigata at the finance ministers and central bankers uh, meeting, uh, part of the G7. This is the penultimate meeting, the second to last before the summit, the G7 summit over in Hiroshima coming up uh, next Friday. Now, Yellen uh, did a press conference and also took questions. And in answer to one of the questions, uh, she said America should never default. It would be catastrophic, her words. And uh, it should, this eventuality should be regarded as something that everybody thinks is unthinkable. She uh, made mention of the 14th Amendment that some people have been talking about as an option to justify issuing uh, just enough debt to pay America's bills, the government's bills. But she said that the president himself thinks that this is not just a just not a realistic long term solution. Personally, and she was pretty clear these were her own personal views, she thought uh, it would probably be a better idea for the president to unilaterally be able to decide to raise the debt ceiling. Congress, of course, might push back, but then the president could veto that as well. Frank? All right, Martin, thank you very much. Our Martin Soong, live in Japan. All right, time now for a check of your morning's top stories. And President Trump weighing in on the debt limit debate. Our Pippa Stevens back with that headline and much more. Hey, Pippa. Hello again, Frank. Well, starting here with former President Trump, who is urging Republican lawmakers to let the U.S. default on its debt if Democrats don't agree to spending cuts. Trump's comments coming during a CNN town hall event last night, the 2024 GOP candidate adding he doesn't think the U.S. will actually default, saying that Democrats will, quote, absolutely cave. And Blackstone is reportedly in talks with regional banks about forming a lending partnership. Speaking with the Financial Times, Blackstone President John Gray says the alternative asset manager is in talks with lenders with between $100 billion and $250 billion in assets. Under the plan, the banks would originate loans that Blackstone could funnel to its insurance customers in a bid to help the banks offload some of their risk. And an influential proxy advisor is reportedly reversing course and recommending support for pay plans for top J.P. Morgan executives, including Jamie Dimon. According to the Financial Times, Institutional Shareholder Services told clients this week it was switching its recommendation after using incorrect data when comparing JPM's pay against its peers. ISS initially led a rejection of the bank's pay policies last year and advised investors last week to reject them during a vote at the bank's annual shareholder meeting next week. Frank? All right. A lot to watch there. Yeah. Our busy Stevens. morning. Yeah, very busy morning. Our Pippa Stevens, thank you very much. All right. Time now for one of this morning's big money movers. We're talking about Disney, the Dow component. Shares sinking on the back of its Q2 earnings results, revenue and profit coming in line with Wall Street's projections. The street, however, really focusing on Disney's streaming unit with direct to consumer operating income losses falling dramatically from a year ago, down 26 percent. Subscribers, they also declined by 2 percent. CEO Bob Iger remaining committed to Disney's streaming strategy, which also includes Hulu and ESPN saying the company plans to combine content across all three platforms. Iger also addressing Disney's ongoing battle with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, calling it a matter of retaliation. Joining me now to discuss John Hudlick, UBS Managing Director. John, great to have you here. Thanks, Frank. Thanks for having me. 
All right, so we just covered it. Disney shares are down this morning despite, you know, coming in in line with Wall Street's expectations. What did you see in that report? What did you hear on the call? Did it change your price target for the company or your rating? No, we still have a buy rating, same price target, no, no change there. Uh, I would say the results were largely as expected. They beat on earnings. Uh, I would say the three major segments were, were as expected. Some of the guidance that they gave looking into next quarter was a bit weaker than expected. They expect to continue to lose subs uh, on the D2C side. Um, there's a, a little bit higher losses coming next quarter for, for D2C, and they talked about some inflation creeping in on the parks. But I, I, as you said, I think the, the, the main story is they talked about combining Disney Plus and Hulu in, in one app, in one app which I think is a precursor to them taking 100% control of Hulu down the road after they finish negotiations with Comcast. Interesting. So just for the audience, by the way, your price target's 122, Disney trading at about 101 right now. So one other part of this report that seemed really interesting, maybe even underreported, is that Bob Iger, he changed the forecast for the cost cutting. Um, before it was $5.5 billion, and now he's saying at least $5.5 billion. Is that a big deal for the company and especially for the stock? We think it is. Um, again, you know, the, a lot of these costs come out of the, the D2C business where, where they're running essentially three separate apps, right? You have Disney Plus, you have Hulu, you have ESPN Plus. Um, Hulu is 30% owned by Comcast. And when we think that issue gets rationalized uh, early next year and with, with Disney taking over 100% control of it. Once that happens, there's a tremendous amount of cost that, that, that can be taken out, really starting with content. You just don't need that much content on one app. So they'll rationalize the content spend. Beyond that, there's technical savings, there's marketing savings, there's overlapping functional areas. We believe that there's over $2 billion in incremental cost savings to come once that rationalization occurs. Hey, by the way, I want to correct myself. Uh, Disney trading at 95 bucks, but your price target is correct, 122 So I want to pull in this thread of streaming just for a bit longer, if you don't mind. Um, it does sound like Bob Iger wants to buy the rest of Hulu. Isn't that a complete 180 from the, what he was saying before? Look, I, it, it may be. I think, you know, he, he has made comments about spending too much on generate entertainment content just and, and, ra- and rather shifting money or, or sticking with the real Disney tent poles. Uh, but at the end of the day, he doesn't have a choice. What's going to happen here is whatever Comcast wants to happen. They have a put where they can put their stake to Disney. We think they're going to do that. It happens effectively January 1, but then the company is going to refocus on all this cost cutting and, frankly, a, a tighter, uh, you know, probably smaller but, but more profitable D2C strategy going forward. All right. One last question. The Ron DeSantis issue, Bob Iger mentioned it, called it a retaliation. Is this political tension in Florida? Is this a big deal or not a big deal? I don't think it's a big deal. I mean, I think I think he, uh, Bob had a message he wanted to get out you know, on, on the call. Uh, if anything, I think he's trying to lower tensions in Florida there. Um, from a financial standpoint, it's, it's really a sideshow. Um, and we think it'll be worked out. I mean, at, at the end of the day, you know, uh, moving from the, 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 you know, the Reedy Creek uh, sort of framework that they had to uh, sort of a more traditional framework from a regulatory standpoint is really not a big cost uh, center for the company. And frankly, shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't change much in terms of the model. Okay, certainly not changing your price target. Still at 122. John Hudlick, thank you very much for being here. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Frank. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, fresh insight into the consumer and just how much they're willing to open up their wallets. That new data from MasterCard in a first on CNBC interview when Worldwide Exchange returns. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your morning call sheet, where we check on a few of the morning's biggest upgrades and downgrades. 
by firms that you know and stocks that you likely own. Let's start with Roth MKM upgrading Roblox to buy from neutral and raising its price target to 48 bucks a share. Roth says the company is at an inflection point now that management is starting to get its cost under control. Goldman Sachs downgrading Twilio to neutral from buy and lowering its price target from 90 bucks to $53, citing revenue headwinds and a usage-based model that accounts for a concerning 70% of sales. Shares of Twilio down almost 2%. J.P. Morgan upgrading Taser maker Axon to overweight from neutral, citing yesterday's 15% pullback in the stock, driven by what the bank calls temporary headwinds. Shares of Axon up fractionally this morning. All right, turn now to the travel sector as, as Wall Street continues to assess the potential impact of inflation and the Fed's rate hiking campaign and then what it might have on the economy. Those concerns also weighing on Main Street. The latest is Airbnb, issuing a weak outlook despite beating quarterly expectations, saying U.S. consumers are growing increasingly price sensitive when it comes to travel. The comments follow a recent study from the Center for Real Estate and Finance, which notes that hotel pricing momentum is starting to slow down and is likely to turn negative, at least in the near term. However, a new report from MasterCard may suggest a different road ahead. Brickland Dwyer is the global chief economist at MasterCard. He joins me now in a first on CNBC interview to dive further into those results. Brickland, great to have you here. Great. All right, so I think we got to start off with the, with the broad picture. Where does travel in 2023 compare to last year? How is return to office and that business travel? How is that impacting all that? Uh, I think there are three things that set apart travel this year. Uh, one is this is the first time that the, the global economy truly is reopened for travel. Uh, number two, China is, you know, is open for business. And this is 18.5 percent of the global population that is now able to travel. That is a big impact. And that can potentially have a big impact on travel this year. The third thing, as you mentioned, the return to travel preferences have shifted. People continue to spend money on travel and experiences, and that really has been the long-lasting and the key differentiator in travel. So really, China's 19, almost 19 percent of the global travel market did not know that. Global population. Global population. Okay, so it kind of crosses over to travel, but they're obviously a big chunk of the travel. That's right. So I want to focus on those Chinese travelers just for a second. A lot of retail brands, luxury brands, spirits brands, they really depend on Chinese travelers to buy when they're traveling to different countries. So what is the Chinese travel outlook right now? We've seen the reopening kind of have some fits and starts. Yeah, so China has been a fascinating story to watch for a number of reasons. One is we expected this big wave to happen when China reopened. That's not what's been happening. What's been happening is it's been more of a gradual recovery in travel from Chinese travelers. But, But second, when they're traveling, as you mentioned, the luxury sector, they're not buying luxury like they have in the past. What's actually happening is that that experience uh, excitement really is uh, really is catching fire. And so what we've seen in the U.S. of people spending money on experiences in Europe, now it's traveling to China where people, when they travel abroad, they're spending money on experiences and less of those things. Interesting. Let's really focus on the U.S. We mentioned Airbnb. They said that this current quarter might be a little soft, but they were expecting a very strong summer travel season. What's your data showing about the current quarter and about what we're seeing in the second half of the year? So without a doubt, consumers are becoming more price sensitive. They have to balance out between their incomes, their savings and their credit availability, you know, where they're going to spend their money. And when making that calculus, when making that decision, they're looking at that appetite and that preference to travel and just how far their money can go. Top destinations for American travelers really are seeing that Eiffel Tower seeing the Colosseum in Rome, and seeing the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin. Those are really the top destinations of where people are going today. 
All right, we're just showing a graphic. Experiences spending up 65%. So when does that start to moderate, or is that just the new normal? People just want to go out and have a good time as opposed to buying things online. Well, so I think that, you know, what we've seen since the pandemic, people stuff their closets with a bunch of things, uh, and now we're, we're in this experience economy. But this is not new. You know, Frank, before the pandemic, we were all about experiences. Mm-hmm. And that experience economy was really taking off. And now we've just seen that really have its legs. And so people have driven that demand for experiences, and it's been very long-lasting. So I'm not sure that it's such a fad anymore. I think that we're seeing that really, really quite sticky. All right, so you are the global economist for MasterCard. I want to ask you a big macro question. We have a debt ceiling situation going on. We have a banking situation going on that could certainly disrupt the U.S. economy. Um, Potentially, how would that impact the travel outlook for the rest of the year? So I think, you know, when we talk about the debt ceiling, you know, clearly it's a it's a terrible position to play uh, with uh, the uh, financial security of the United States. Um, When we think about some of the other factors affecting the outlook, you know, for people on the ground, they care about what's happening in their pocketbook. They care about their check that they're seeing if they're receiving their income. They care about what's happening in their bank account and they care about their accessibility to credit. And so they really are looking at that that portfolio of how they're able to spend. And that spending is decided by what they need, what they want to buy, and prices, as you mentioned. And that really is determining that outlook for, uh, for spending. All right, we'll have a look at spending coming up. I know your, your spending pulse is coming up in a few days. Um, you don't see it only here on CNBC, by the way, for at least first. Um, Bricklin Dwyer, always great to see you. Thank you for the data and the look at the travel sector. Great, thanks right. a lot. Thank you very much. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, the one word that every investor needs to know today Plus, Morgan Stanley, Private Wealth Management's Katerina Simonetti lays out where she's putting client money to work to weather looming market storms. Those picks are coming up next. And CNBC is celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage throughout the month of May. We're sharing the stories of influential AAPI business leaders. As we had to break, here is Notori Company President Ken Notori. We're incredibly proud to be celebrating our 46th anniversary as an Asian-founded and led independent family business. One of the reasons we've had so much staying power over the years is because we have celebrated and broadcast our Asian roots. It permeates everything we do, from our East meets West design aesthetic, to our core values, to even our supply chain. One of our differentiating factors is that we have a family-owned factory in the Philippines where we manufacture the majority of our in-house collections. The fashion business has never been easy, but we're gonna stay authentic to who we are and we hope our message will continue to resonate with our customers. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your WEX wrap-up, six stories you need to know before the opening bell. New comments from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen at the G7 in Japan. She says the notion the U.S. would default on its debt is unthinkable and would rank as a catastrophe for the global economy. China's CPI rising at the slowest pace in more than two years in April, but producer prices fell at the fastest clip in three years, underscoring the struggle after three years of COVID lockdowns. The EPA is unveiling a sweeping plan to slash greenhouse gas pollution for the nation's coal and gas-fired power plants. The plan could hasten the closure of many older coal plants with solutions including shifting to natural gas or clean hydrogen. Executives and directors at several regional banks snatching up shares of their firms in recent days. According to data from Bankrate.com, U.S. Bank Corp., Keycorp, Stellar Bancorp, and MBT Bancorp. They all saw large buys by insiders over the last week or so. 
Honda reporting fourth quarter operating profit fell by nearly half, missing forecast. The automaker sees profit rising 15% this year as it expects more sales of cars in North America and motorcycles in Asia. And SoftBank posting an annual net loss of $7.2 billion as the value of investments in its vision fund slide further. Its CEO has been focusing on shoring up the balance sheet, cutting its stake in Alibaba, and preparing an IPO for chipmaker Arm. All right, gearing up for the trading day ahead at 8.30 a.m., we get a weekly initial jobless claims, as well as the latest look at inflation with the producer price index. Then on the earnings front, results from Krispy Kreme, Tapestry, and U.S. Foods. At 7 a.m. Eastern, we get the latest rate decision from the Bank of England. And sticking with those central banks, in the 10 a.m. hour, we hear from Fed Governor Christopher Waller. All right, with all that, let's dive into the trading day ahead and bring in Katarina Simonetti, Morgan Stanley, Private Wealth Management Senior Vice President. Katarina, great to see you. Thank you for having me on. So every day we ask Wall Street's brightest minds the one word they believe will describe the trading day ahead. Katarina Simonetti, what is your WEX word of the day? Frank, my word is opportunity. This is a very challenging time for investors that are being told by the experts every day that market is challenging, that they should expect recession, declining earnings, sticky inflation, Federal Reserve that might not be done raising rates, that they will be in the high interest rate environment for a while. And this is a really scary environment. And many investors are paralyzed, not sure what to do. We encourage them to look for buying opportunities in this market, to take it to their full advantage, to build up quality holdings, both on the equity side, and on the fixed income side and expand their time horizon from a couple of months out to perhaps a few years out because we're at the very end, very tail end of this bear market and it presents incredible opportunities. All right, Katarina, you're very optimistic. Your, your outfit matching the futures right now, both of you well in the green. So even though you see a lot of opportunity out there, certainly you do have to protect for some possible downside. As we mentioned, um, we have a debt ceiling negotiation that could create some volatility, also a banking crisis. So on the protection side, what are you advising your clients to do to protect their portfolios with all these possible headwinds coming up? Of course. And uh, Frank, here is the difference between where we were a year ago and where we are right now. In fact, for the last 10 years, we were in a zero rate environment. You know, when investors were looking to go to safety, to go to fixed income, to go to cash, they were giving up returns. They were staying with very low yields. Right now, the environment is different. They can go to fixed income and build up the portfolios with the short-term, high-quality corporate bonds, municipal bonds, money market pay higher yields. And I'm by no means I'm encouraging investors to get out of equity and shift their asset allocation, but perhaps not rush into the equity market right away. Dollar cost average, invest gradually, be very selective about the names that you pick. And through doing that, that will uh, allow a significant level of protection through the turbulent times. Volatility might still be ahead. We're not out of the woods just yet, but this is where you know we need to protect the portfolios for the long term using the yields, using the quality, using the dividend and income component of the investment portfolios. Okay, that's really interesting. We're just showing a graphic with one of the areas you're suggesting your clients go to during these times, and it's healthcare. So why are you so bullish on healthcare as a broader sector? 
Well, Frank, generally there is a rotation with market leadership and technology was the leading sector in the past bull market. So when we're looking ahead, in our view, healthcare is going to be the next uh, leader in this space. We're just coming out of the global pandemic and long-term health implications of that are still unknown. So that coupled with accommodating regulatory environment, competitive positioning, you know, when we look at the healthcare sector, generally we, you know, essentially just go to drug manufacturing which is, you know, correct. There are great names out there, but it's healthcare is so much more than that. There's also drug distributors, laboratories, home healthcare. We have aging population over the next 10, 15 years. The opportunities in this space are absolutely incredible. You know, in addition, of course, there are record keepers and health tech uh, that adds the efficiency, adds the broader margin to the sector. And it's hard sometimes for investors to look for individual names in each and every one of these categories. And this is where, you know, sometimes it makes sense to take position in the entire sector using the indexes. But in our view, healthcare is one of the most pro promising set market sectors out there. All right, Katarina Simonetta, we have to leave the conversation there. Thank you so much for being here on Worldwide Exchange. All right, before we let you go, one last look at the futures this morning. As we mentioned, they are in the green across the board. Uh, the S&P and the Nasdaq both up about a third of a percent. The Dow up fractionally could open up, actually kind of off of its highs from earlier this morning, just taking a closer look at it. All right, that's going to do it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. We've got Squawk Box coming up next. Thank you for watching. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC.